0: chapter and giving a defense of his apostleship, he speaks clearly of the origin of his message. In chapter one, beginning in verse eleven, Paul writes, But I certify you brethren that the gospel which was preached of me is not after men, for neither I received it of man, neither was I taught it, but by the revelation of Jesus Christ. Paul knew the source of the gospel, and he writes for us there that is from Jesus Christ. As he wrote in Second Timothy the third chapter beginning in verse 16, a very familiar passage teaching every one of us, but he testifies there that all scripture is given by the inspiration of God. It has been God-breathed, and that is the source from which the gospel comes. As we think about things concerning God's word, skeptics have ridiculed it, modernists have assailed it, the worldly-minded have reviled it, false teachers have twisted it, Men have tried to destroy it from the face of the earth, but still it stands as the book of books, God's library of truth and refuge of hope as we consider our salvation. In the psalmist, the 119th chapter, beginning of verse 41, he writes there concerning God's word, he says, "'Let the mercies come unto me, O Lord.'" even your salvation according to your word. The Bible lights our way of escape from darkness and from the sin and from death, according to Psalms 119, verse number 105. As we think about what Paul discussed with the Ephesian elders when he called them together in Acts chapter 20, he commends them to God in verse number 32, and it says there, and the word of his grace, which is able to build you up, And to give you an inheritance. And that's Acts 20 and verse 32. The word of his grace, he calls it. By grace, God gave us his word. That's part of uh, what he has given to us as we consider the grace that he has given. of course, in his word, it tells us how we have access to that favor and grace which God has given us. As we consider this morning the title of our lesson, which you can see up on the screen now, Providential Preservation, the indestructible word of God. God in his mercy and grace has revealed his mind and his will to us, and it's through his scriptures that he has done so. And it's by his providential preservation uh, that we have these words today. Appreciate the songs, Brother Stu leading us in the power and might of God and what he is able to do. And it's through his providential preservation that we have the word of God today. As we consider this this morning, just a thought on providence, let's be reminded of what providence is and what it is not as we think about this idea this morning and look at some evidences both internal and external. But providence is not a miracle. A miracle, if you remember, is an act of God superseding or suspending natural law. That's what a miracle is. We have plenty of examples in the scriptures of what a miracle is. But providence differs from a miracle in that its ends are brought about by the means of of the established laws of God through ordinary channels. That's what providence is. The International Standard Bible Encyclopedia defines it as providence is the preservation, care, and government which God exercises over all that he has created in order that they may accomplish the end for which they were created. That's what providence is as we consider that. We think about prayer. Uh, we're told to ask and seek. Uh, we're told to pray for things. It's through God's providence that he delivers and answers our prayers uh, as, as we do so. We think about Joseph in the Old Testament. What a great example of, of the providence of God there and how his overruling the evil intent of his brothers there uh, in, in Genesis chapter 50 and verse 20. It's written, But as for you, ye thought evil against me, but God meant it unto good to bring it to pass, and it is this day to save much people. It was God that brought to pass the things, uh, as we can read very clearly in the history, in the story of jo- Joseph, to accomplish what he wanted to accomplish. That's what providence is. Good definition for What's written in Romans 8 and 28 as well. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God. That's what providence is. And that's what we're going to consider this morning. The thought that we want to meditate on is do we have a grounded faith in God and his providence in regard to his preservation of his word? Is it reasonable to think that God would put forth all the effort in giving a revelation to man only to let that revelation become hopelessly corrupt and even destroyed. It's it's an interesting thought. It's something we should think about. It's something that we have to have faith in uh, as we consider uh, this idea. It should be obvious to anyone who has faith in the omnipotent God that the God of the Bible, if he was interested enough in man to give the revelation in the first place, that certainly he was interested in man enough to preserve that revelation so that man could benefit from it. And that's logical. That's logical. What we hear in the world is illogical in regards to the authenticity of the scriptures as we consider it. Let's consider some evidence uh, this morning as we look at uh, three different points, both internal and external as we, in regards to evidence. But as we consider the indestructibility of God's word, what does the Bible claim for itself? That's a good place to start. One of the claims which the Bible makes is that it can never be destroyed. Certainly, the abundance of copies and now even electronic access of the Scripture is abundant proof that God has made good to His claim. The Word of God has been preserved for us uh, as as He delivered it originally. In many passages, the indestructibility of the Scripture is pronounced. In 1 Peter, the first chapter, our text this morning, let's read together, beginning with verse number 22. As we consider this idea, beginning in verse twenty-two, seeing ye have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit, unto unfeigned love of the brethren, see that ye love one another with a pure heart fervently, being born again not of corruptible seed but of incorruptible by the word of God which liveth and abideth forever. For all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man as the flower of grass. The grass withereth, and the flower therefore thereof, excuse me, fadeth away. But the word of the Lord endureth forever, and this is the word which by the gospel is preached unto you. Notice carefully uh, the important items Peter speaks of here through the Holy Spirit in regard to stating what God's word does for us. Look at verse 22. Through our obedience to it, our souls can be purified. In verse 23, he says, through its power... Our spirit is regenerated by being born again or begotten, allowing us to enter into his kingdom. That's the power of God's word, that we can be born again. We're mindful of John chapter 3 and Jesus' discussion there where he says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a man be born of water and of the spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of heaven. So it's by the word of God that we are begotten uh, and that we are purified. But verse 23 and And uh, through 25 here is really uh, the point of our text that we want to look at here. And we understand that there's a contrast here being given. Look, it says, Not of corruptible or perishable seed, but of incorruptible, imperishable. By the word of God, they had experienced the new birth. See the contrast? Not of corruptible, but of incorruptible. Something that cannot be destroyed. And here in verse 25, uh, the point In verse 23 and verse 25, Peter mentions here concerning the word that it lives and abides forever. It endureth forever. Uh, A quotation from Isaiah uh, chapter 40 uh, as we see here. But think about those things. It liveth and abideth forever. The word of the Lord endures forever. That's the promise that we have uh, from God. That's the internal evidence revealed uh, in the scripture. Let's look a little further Uh, as some things that the Lord and Savior says concerning the indestructibility of the Word of God. Two different passages or two different thoughts here. First in Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter uh, 24 and verse 35, you'll note that this is the section of scripture where Jesus is answering some questions that his disciples ask him. Uh, And here he's making the transition from the things that uh, pertain to the destruction of Jerusalem uh, to the end of time. And here he says in in, in verse number 35 of Matthew chapter 24, heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. Notice again the contrast. You have that which is perishable and passing, the heavens and the earth, versus that which will not pass away. His words or my words shall not pass away. A few chapters back in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus spoke of the enduring nature of God's word as demonstrated in the Mosaic law. He said there, I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle may no be, by no means excuse me, pass from the law till all is fulfilled. That was Matthew chapter 5 and verse 18. Now we can see that Jesus attaches this same durability to what he calls my words, which we just read in Matthew Chapter 24, Jesus makes it clear that the present universe will not continue forever. God's word will endure, uh, but his creation will not. When the heavens shall, be pa- shall pass away with a great noise, the elements melted with fervent heat, the earth and the works therein burned up, the Bible, the word of God, will yet remain. As quoted there from Peter, Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 8, the grass withereth, the flower fadeth, but the word Of our God shall stand forever. The scriptures claim that the word of our Lord must remain until uh, time is no more. The other passage that we have reference to, John chapter 12 and verse 48, Jesus says there, He that rejecteth me and receiveth not my signs hath one that judgeth him. The word that I spake, the same shall judge him in the last day. The scriptures are clear that from the time that the word of the Lord was put in written form and delivered until judgment, it shall never be destroyed. It's going to be what we are judged by at the day of judgment. Therefore, the word of God will endure till that time. As we look at another point concerning the indestructibility of God's word, think about the indestructible kingdom that we are a part of, that was established. The Bible again asserts this same truth in slightly a different matter. It asserts that the kingdom of God shall never be destroyed. You remember the prophecy back in Daniel chapter 2 and verse number 44? It's up on the screen. But here we had, you remember Daniel uh, interpreting Nebuchadnezzar's dream. He said that it would endure forever. Daniel chapter 2 verse 44, And in the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom, he's talking about the Roman Empire, which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms and shall forever stand. The writer of the book of Hebrews also confirms that the kingdom which was delivered was built and will endure forever. Consider again the contrast uh, put forth here as we look at Hebrews, the 12th chapter, verse Number 27. The, infor- uh, the inferiority, excuse me, of the old covenant and those things that were part of it have been shaken. That's the point that the author is making here. The old covenant has ended and is therefore trans- transitory. We have a better covenant, a better high priest, uh, a new kingdom that he's talking about. And in verse number 27 of Hebrews chapter 12, it is written, And this word yet once more signifieth the removing of those things that are shaken, of the things that are made. That those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Wherefore we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved, let us have grace, whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. But what are the implications of these statements as we think about this idea of the kingdom? Simply that the word of God can never be destroyed. So long as the kingdom remains, the seed of the kingdom, which is the word of God, must remain. You remember the parable in Luke chapter eight? What is the seed of the kingdom? As Jesus explains the parable in, in verse number 11, he says, Now the parable is, is this, the seed is the word of God. Again, as long as the kingdom remains, the seed of the kingdom remains. If the kingdom will last forever, so the word of God must last forever. What a blessing that we have from God when we think about these things. Consider further here uh, another point uh, concerning God's providential power here and the indestructibility of God's word. But think about the antiquity of the Bible. When we talk about the antiquity of the Bible, we're just talking about, uh, you know, before the Middle Ages, back to the time uh, of the apostles or, or early uh, in the first and second centuries. And this is what we're thinking about here. But when, when we look at God's providential power, uh, we can see that in history, just as we thought, t- talked about Joseph already. Uh, Really hard to call anything God's providence uh, uh, as we know it and as we experience things today. We certainly believe in God's providence, but as we we look at history, uh, we get an understanding of this. The Bible is a very ancient book. Its antiquity is a wonder. It's a marvel that the Bible has remained until this present time if you've studied the history at all. I'm quite sure it would not have remained this long had it not been for God's providence and his purpose. God's providential power and might can be seen as we consider the history of God's Word. History has borne out the fact that despite man's best efforts to destroy it or suppress it, the Bible continues to endure forever. Consider some examples here this morning as we think about this idea. Think about the Roman suppression of Christianity uh, there in the first, second, and into even the third century uh, as we can read uh, from history. Early in the history of Christianity, Clement of Alexander wrote uh, in his writings, many martyrs are daily burned, crucified, and beheaded before your eyes. For, for many years, Christianity was outlawed by the Roman government. From the time of the emperor uh, Trajan till, until Constantine, about uh, 300 A.D. or so, virtually every one of the Roman emperors was opposed to Christianity. Specifically, look at, we look at Diocletian under his rule, who preceded Constantine, Eusebius the historian uh, in his church history book wrote, royal edicts were published everywhere commanding that the churches be leveled to the ground and the scriptures destroyed by fire. Those are the edicts given uh, under the Roman ruler, specifically Diocletian as we talk there. He went on to say, Diocletian is, that if anyone had a copy of the scripture and did not surrender it to be burned, if it were discovered, he would be killed. Furthermore, if any other Should know of one who had a copy of the scriptures and did not report it, he also would be killed. A strong edict concerning those uh, in the first century. After this edict had been enforced for a couple years, Diocletian boasted, I have completely exterminated the Christian writings from the face of the earth. But had he completely destroyed it? History tells us that Constantine became a Christian. That's the ruler after Diocletian. He requested that copies of the scriptures be made for all the churches. And that after he offered a substantial reward, within about 25 hours, 50 copies of the Bibles were brought to him. They didn't, he didn't destroy, uh, Diocletian didn't destroy God's word, right? It was still available. And we can see that in history a, a, as we uh, look at these things. When we think about atheist predictions, there have been many. We think about Voltaire, the French uh, atheist there and he boasted the fact that within a hundred years of his time or his lifetime Christianity would be swept from the earth but only 50 years after his death as noted on the screen his own printing press and house were being used by the Geneva Bible Society to produce stacks of Bibles after the printing press uh, was invented and so we can see there God's providence God's hand even during this difficult time of persecution how true is the statement Peter quotes from Isaiah concerning the word of God enduring forever. What about ancient Bible manuscripts? Uh, And we see some good evidence here, again, as we look at some external evidence. We don't have the original Bible manuscripts today. I think we can all understand that. Um, They were written by inspired men, but we have copies of those originals. And from those copies, the Bible is translated into English and many other uh, languages that we have in the world. Since the printing press was not invented until many centuries after the completion of the scriptures, the copies had to be made by hand. Consequently, it has been charged that these copies have been so corrupted by the errors of the copyists that it is impossible to determine God's original message to man. These These are the things that people claim. These are, these, are, these are challenges made by those that have no faith uh, in the scriptures. They have a faith. They have a faith that there is no God, that there's no divine pattern or rule, and they make these statements. But these are false, baseless statements made by many an unqualified person. Don't ever accept uh, those type of challenges uh, to God's word as we think about what's been delivered and we think about these particular things. Scholars have studied this matter and agree that we have uh, substantially, excuse me, the Word of God as they were revealed from heaven. One of the most outstanding scholars of recent years, Dr. Edward J. Young, you might have some of his material. But in his work, Thy Word is Truth, he writes this. Are these copies, however hopelessly corrupt? For our part, we are convinced that they are not. We believe that the Bible which we have is accurate and that is remarkably close. Approximation. The original manuscripts. He goes on to write, One cannot but exclaim, after having spent much time in the study of the Hebrew text, and of course, the same is true of the manuscripts of the New Testament, that these manuscripts have been preserved by the singular care and providence of God. That's from a scholar, that's from a notable scholar uh, of the scriptures. And we can quote many more uh, of the Greek scholars that would agree with this position. Due to the thousands of New Testament manuscripts we have, with some of them dating back to the second and the third centuries, it is possible to be very certain about the correct reading of the New Testament text that we have. There is no doubt as you talk to those uh, scholars that aren't tainted by some uh, uh, pre-existing idea in regards to the scriptures. And finally here, what if we compare it against other secular, historical, ancient manuscripts? This is interesting as, as you look about what's available for us to compare the text of the, the New Testament and the Old Testament against other writings in secular history. This is the textual criticism uh, that you might hear uh, that goes on. One of the most world's foremost scholars in this area, F.F. Uh, F. Bruce, in his work, The Books and the Parchment, he says there is no body of ancient literature in the world which enjoys such a wealth of good textual attestation as the New Testament. Again, valid comment from an authorized, from one that's very well known in regards to his scholarship uh, on the documents, the textual criticism uh, as we understand it. Inciting evidence for this statement um, Bruce observes here that the earliest useful manuscripts that we have from two very Greek notable historians, and this is interesting, Herodotus and Thucydides, they wrote around 5th, 5th century uh, B.C., but the text that we have, the manuscripts that we have, are 1,300 to 1,400 years after that. And you know what? There's not one bit of challenge to the authenticity of what those things say. They don't challenge That, But they believe everything that is written. And look at the the range and the gap from when it was written uh, to the uh, manuscripts that we have. Also, when we think about Julius Caesar and his Gallic Wars written around 50 B.C., this is a very critical piece of Roman history. Made Julius Caesar famous as we think about it. But the oldest manuscripts we have are some 900 years uh, from the time of Caesar's day. And guess what? They don't challenge any of the things that are written in there, as not being authentic uh, authentic, or being corrupted uh, and not believing that they actually uh, happened as were written. We see those things in regards to secular history and ancient manuscripts. The indestructibility of God's Word, brethren, uh, there's no doubt about it. The textual evidence for the New Testament is abundant beyond all comparison with other works. If you look at what's available, also uh, F.F. Bruce writes, He says the number of extant manuscripts of all or part of the Greek New Testament runs about 5,000 different manuscripts. That was written some time ago. Today it's up to almost 5,800 manuscripts that we have, some of them, again, dating back to the 2nd century. If every number of manuscripts, or excuse me, if the very number of manuscripts increases the total scribal corruption, it supplies at the same time the means by checking them. We have so much information that can cross-check and validate and verify that we truly do uh, have the written uh, Word of God. As we close this morning and, and we think about uh, the indestructibility of God, God's Word, let's read again from our text. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22. Seeing ye have purified your souls and obeying the truth through the Spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren, see that ye love one another with a pure heart fervently, being born again not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. For all flesh is grass, and all the glory of man is the flower of grass. The grass withereth, and the flower thereof falleth away. But the word of the Lord endureth forever. And this is the word which by the gospel is preached unto you. We have to have faith, brethren, that in God's promises, that he's kept what he promised in regards to providing his word god 's promises are complete as he 's preserved the word of god let 's have respect as we think about uh, god 's word let 's have respect and reverence for god 's word uh, and let 's have the confidence in the power of god 's word it's the faith uh, that we think about in Hebrews chapter eleven, uh, as as the writer writes there. the worlds were framed by the Word of god that 's the kind of faith that we have. we can believe uh, we have to have. Faith and belief uh, that we have the true written Word of God. The lesson is yours this morning. Simple lesson on evidences as we think upon the indestructibility of the Word of God. We're going to have a word of prayer here now, and then we're going to dismiss to our respective classes here in the auditorium and classes uh, in the rear of the building. Let's all pray together. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we come before you, recognizing you, Father, as the Creator of all things the creator of heavens and earth. Father, it was by your word that you spoke all things into being. Your word is so powerful and so mighty. It truly is indestructible. It truly is everlasting, Heavenly Father. We're so thankful, Father, that you have given us the grace of your word that we can read, that we can understand, and that we can know, Father, that we are in a right relationship with you. Help us, Father, to let your word guide our steps in this life. Help us, Father, to have respect and reverence for your word as truly the word of God. Thankful, Father, for this hour. Thankful, Father, for this first day. Pray that you'd be with us now as we continue our worship and continue our study in your will. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.